Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Dressed, the history of fashion is a production of Dressed Media. people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dress, the history of fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Hello, Dress listeners, and welcome to an episode that I must admit is long overdue. <laughs> and it's long overdue and then it's taken us six seasons to an episode on one of the greatest designers of the 21st century <laughs> and also long overdue and that I recorded this episode with today's guests in January of this year. So <laughs> as our listeners know, we had a major transition this past spring as we took the show independent. But as they say, there's no time like the present. And we are so excited to share today's episode with you now. And that is because, as Cass alluded to, we are bringing you an episode on the late, great designer Lee Alexander McQueen. The subject of the exhibition Lee Alexander McQueen, Mind, Mythos, Muse, that originally debuted in 2022 at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, which was curated by today's guests, Clarissa Esguera and Michaela Hansen. And I say originally debuted at LACMA because the exhibition is currently touring. And this is very exciting. Um, after its reincarnation at the National Gallery of Victoria in Melbourne, Australia, hi, Katie and team, it is now on view at the Beaux Arts Museum in Quebec, Canada. And it must be said that each museum has put its own spin on the exhibition's core concept that was created by Clarissa and Michaela. And as we will discuss more today, the exhibit puts McQueen's conceptual and technical virtuosity in conversation with a canon of art makers who drew on similar themes and visual references in their work. Quote, exploring imagination, artistic process, and innovation in fashion and art, the exhibition examines the interdisciplinary impulse that defined the designer's career. Displaying select McQueen garments from the collection of Regina J. Trucker, alongside artworks largely from LACMA's permanent collection. Mind Mythos Muse presents a case study of the designer's methods and influences, and in doing so, provides the opportunity to better understand artistic legacy and cycles of inspiration. And we are so pleased to welcome Clarissa back to the show. She came on in 2019 to discuss her exhibition, Power of Pattern, Central Asian Ecots. So, Michaela, welcome to Dressed, and Clarissa, welcome back. Clarissa, Michaela, welcome to Dressed. Thank you. Thank you so much. We're so happy to be here. Oh, yeah. It's so nice to see your faces and to have you here. And congratulations on this wonderful exhibition. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it means a lot coming from you, especially. <laughs> we are huge fans of Alexander McQueen on the podcast and have 
admittedly never done a podcast episode on him. So this is very long overdue. And you gave us the perfect, uh, this was a perfect opportunity. So thank you. And we're going to learn all about the exhibit today. But first, I would just love if we could start with an introduction to the exhibition's namesake. Who was Lee Alexander McQueen? And how did he become Alexander McQueen? It's a great question. Of course, he is extremely well known and there is a lot of material out there on his biography for anyone who's interested in a really deep dive. Just a brief overview is Lee Alexander McQueen was born in 1969 in London. Um, He came from a working class family, but he went on to become really one of the most influential designers in the world in the 1990s through his early death in 2010. Uh, He had a childhood interest in art and design that was really encouraged by his family. He was very close with his mother. And that really led to him leaving traditional schooling at the age of 16. And he became an apprentice in tailoring on Savile Row, which is really incredible. Um, And from there- At just 16. At just 16, (laughs) yeah, as you do. Um, Yeah, (laughs) as one does. So he has, yeah, he has this incredible background in tailoring, which makes him extremely unique among fashion designers. So he's really a maker. He knows fashion construction in and out. Um, And then from there, he uh, worked with well-known fashion designers like Koji Tatsumo in London and Romeo Gigli in Milan um, before enrolling in an MA program in London at Central St. Martin's to formally study fashion design. So he had a effectively had an entire career in fashion before even studying it in school. Um, And then he he graduated. um, His MA thesis was famously purchased by Isabella Blow, the well-known fashion stylist. And that really launched his career when she purchased um, his Jack the Ripper stocks that have stocks his victims um, collection. And it really launched his career. And Isabella Blow, in fact, is the person that suggested that he rename his fashion label Alexander McQueen instead of using his first name, Lee. Wow. And I love, I mean, I'm a huge McQueen fan, let's be honest. Uh, We could talk about him all day. And that's just a little bit of his background. And I love that he's been quoted as saying, my collections are autobiographical. And of course, a lot of what we're going to do today is dig into his collections and his perspective as a designer and as an artist and as a maker. Of course, he died in 2010, far too soon, but his legacy lives on in his namesake brand. And of course, in exhibitions like the one we are here to talk about today, uh, Lee Alexander McQueen. Queen Mind Mythos Muse. So tell us about this exhibition, maybe just a brief introduction, perhaps starting with what inspired it in the first place. Yes, the inspiration of the show really began several years ago uh, when we received a cold call from a local uh, collector. Her name is uh, Regina J. Drucker. Uh, She called us and said, I have this collection of high fashion, you should take a look at it. And, you know, as curators around the world know, this is something that they get these calls. And, and so, (laughs) but you always want to check them out because you don't know. And so um, our department head and fearless leader, Sharon Takeda and I went to go uh, check out this collection and we were amazed. It was incredible. Um, It had works from designers that spanned the 20th century and 21st century of fashion. Um, as I like to say, beginning from Azadine Alaya all the way through Zandra Rose and everyone in between, it had Balenciaga, it had Dior, it had um, wow. Charles James. But the designer that she collected the most was McQueen for his eponymous label. And one of the reasons why she was really drawn to him was because she's a great student of history, loves art. Um, She's third generation Mexican-American. And so history was really something important to her growing up. And as you said, his biography is something that you see in every single collection. And she was really drawn to that. She could see his history in his clothing, as well as art history and the history of colonization, the history of movements of aesthetics, all these things. And so that was one of the reasons why she was really drawn to him. And so when we began to acquire the collection, we, Michaela, um, you know, said, you know, we have the largest collection of McQueen in a public institution, we think, you know? Yeah, with her gift. Yeah, her her gift. We have McQueen in the collection before Regina's amazing donation, but with her gift, it really grew that area of our collection. So it really, really broadened it. And it, it wasn't just, 
you know, it's really a breadth and depth of McQueen's design. So we have this very strong collection and we just wanted to celebrate that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, so Sharon said, I think we should do a show. You two should do it. And, you know, this is a pretty significant designer <laughs> and his show at the Metropolitan organized by the Costume Institute and the amazing team there. And, and that retrospective then moved to the Victorian and Albert Museum with their incredible staff and in concert with the house too. You know, this was something that we loved those shows. And so in thinking about our show, we thought, okay, the retrospective has been done. What more can we say about McQueen? And what can we bring from our institution that's different? And, um, and so, you know, with those foundational shows and publications, we then looked at us. And because this collection from Regina came to us as a permanent collection gift, we thought, what if we make a celebration of our permanent collection and put him in dialogue with other artists and show him in a way that puts him in art history. He's among the canon of other artists in our view, working out of an encyclopedic institution where we do have a fashion department. We wanted to kind of show him on par with other artists that are shown here, but we have the permanent collections to to really display these dialogues physically in person with objects, which is exciting. Yeah, I mean, when looking at his collections and analyzing his sources of inspiration, he drew inspiration from across time, place, and media. And our museum at, at LACMA, we collect art from all places, all times, and all media. And so what if we contextualize his work within art history and show that he's part of this greater canon of artists? and art makers, but that his medium is fashion. And so that's kind of where we began. And we started to test this out by pairing things in her collection with, with objects that are in, uh, in our museum uh, across curatorial departments. And the aha moment was when we were looking at the scanners collection, uh, which is one that tells the story of a migration from Siberia through Tibet to Japan. Yeah, definitely. We. Um... We noticed we have one dress in particular from the runway collection of scanners, silver and black, and it has, um, it's a knee length called the croquet style dress, and it has a very distinctive geometric pattern. And the pattern is, it's really characterized by its interlocking um, octagons and floral medallions, which as we were reviewing artworks in our permanent collections, we realized, you know, this is a pattern that you see in Tibetan artwork. It's called Kati Rimo in Tibetan. It appears throughout Tibetan decorative arts. It also originates from China, so it appears in Chinese art. It travels, much like it travels from China into Tibet, it also traveled into Japan, where it's known as Shoko. Uh, but it's this beautiful pattern that you see across the Buddhist world, really. And we were able to dig through our collections and we had input from um, our colleague Bindu in South and Southeast Asian art to find Tibetan artifacts that showed exactly the same pattern. And we were just so excited that McQueen took this pattern that is centuries old and he really reinvented it. And it also speaks to a lot of his personal history, the fact that later in his life he became Buddhist. There seems to be a connection there of how he came to be familiar with the pattern. And it just, yeah, it really reinforced for us that with objects, we could tell these stories visually, which is great. And in this, in this particular example, McQueen is using a documented pattern that has migrated with people in his story about migration. And so we were just floored and we thought, okay, if we can do it with this, what else can we do yeah, it with? Exactly. And so that was when we started reaching out to other departments. We started really looking at all of his collections and we were like, wow, I think we can, we can do a show. <laughs> Absolutely. And I love, as you've mentioned, that you present McQueen as an artist, but also that you celebrate the ways that he's um, and explore the ways that he's inspired by art and art history and fashion history and, and all of these interlocking themes that play out in his work time and time again. And once you start pulling those threads, you can see how deep his inspiration runs and how thoughtful he is in the execution of so many of his designs. Can you speak about why you decided to include his full name in the exhibition title? Yeah, absolutely. I think to your point that 
in our view, McQueen is an artist. I guess we were thinking about it from the perspective that Lee Alexander McQueen is the person and Alexander McQueen is the brand. And as an art museum, looking at him again among this canon of fellow artists who he shares different kind of art making approaches with throughout history, we wanted to highlight his individual process, his individual kind of story and inspiration. And we knew that, as Clarissa said, you know, retrospectives have been done. So the show wasn't really a biographical exhibition. It was about his, his art making process and kind of the legacy of that and this kind of cycles of inspiration that you see in both his art and that he shares with other artists. So across four thematic sections, the exhibition puts McQueen's work in conversation with his inspiration. So film, photography, conceptual art, music, as well as science, philosophy, religion. Can you share with us some insights into the thematic organization of the exhibit, as well as the reasoning behind the specific objects you chose to pair with McQueen's designs? I mean, this was very much as you've spoke to a collaboration between departments at the museum. Yeah, definitely. So like we were saying, it's not a retrospective, so it's not organized chronologically. So we came up with four different thematic groupings, which were really informed by what is in LACMA's permanent collection and the stories we can tell with those objects. So uh, the first section, mythos, he is looking to kind of global stories of religion, um, mythologies, familiar tales that he kind of is pulling reference from. The fashion narrative section, he is really crafting original stories completely from his own imagination that play out on the runway. Technique and innovation is where we kind of look at, as it suggests, his techniques <laughs> in dressmaking, tailoring, textile developments that he made, his look at costume history. And then evolution and existence is where we're kind of exploring all the ways that McQueen is looking at questions of sort of the meaning of life. What is existence? What does it mean that you know, where does life come from and how does it end and where the beauty is to be found in all of that. And I think he's a very poetic designer. And so certainly there are many other themes that could be teased out from his, his collections. And one of our favorite quotes, I think we found in doing our research is where McQueen talks about in any one collection, he could be referencing over 300 different themes or art movements or time periods. So these are just four that we could support with juxtapositions from our permanent collection. Yeah, and after we came up with these thematic sections, um, we kind of did our own dive of pairing works by McQueen with artworks um, outside of our department of costume and textiles. Uh, so we really looked across the entire museum and, and once we kind of got a group together, we met with each individual department and, and their curatorial staff and presented these ideas to them. And to our honor and delight, they were incredibly supportive and enthusiastic in that they would support our ideas or they would say, you know, one thing that you didn't see is this other piece. And, yeah. and through that, we were discovering more pieces we didn't know about. And as we were working on our exhibition catalog, we actually invited several of our colleagues to speak more deeply about those objects. And in this process, something that was really gratifying for us is that in our deep dive of trying to understand McQueen with art that is not fashion, we were able to make these wonderful connections which led our colleagues to make really important discoveries of their works in painting and sculpture and prints. I mean, it was really gratifying and it, it meant so much to us. And, and also, I should also say that and to, to remind our, even ourselves that we did the show during COVID. Right. The organization <laughs> of it began before COVID and then we were about to embark in the photo dressing photography process. And then that March, we just got hit with, with this pandemic that we're still coping with. And that meant that libraries were closed our librarians were as helpful as they could possibly be, but we couldn't travel to go anywhere to do our own research on McQueen specifically. And so the ability for us to know and learn so much about McQueen really is thanks to John Matheson, who is this incredible font of knowledge of McQueen. He um, is the person who created and curates McQueen Vault on Instagram. And he came on as a consultant for us. He has his own personal archive of supplementary materials. So he was able to help us support dates of certain objects, themes that we were teasing out. And 
we would have these weekly discussions with him. He was absolutely amazing. And so uh, he is one of, the, one of the, the key pieces in helping us make this show happen as well, in addition to our wonderful colleagues. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. I mean, I don't think people... I mean, maybe they, maybe our listeners do, because we talk about it a lot, but so much goes into the making of an exhibition. I remember when you first told me about that you were planning this, I think it was five years ago. So it's amazing (laughs) how much work goes into, uh, into the making of the exhibition. And I think it's also really refreshing to hear how much you worked with other departments and how much the other departments in your museum recognized how significant fashion historians are to non quote unquote fashion related objects. But the truth is bringing a fashion historian in to date art, for instance, is such an undervalued uh, (laughs) collaboration. So I think that's really refreshing and really awesome that you were able to kind of help each other in that way. Yeah. Yeah, it was really rewarding, such a rewarding experience. It was our favorite part, I think, of working on this exhibition. It was just so much fun. (laughs) So now we're just going to start diving in. The first section is mythos, and that looks at the ways in which religion and mythology informed McQueen's work. It opens with a jacket from McQueen's untitled Fall-Winter 2010-2011 collection, which was, of course, finished and shown after his untimely death. Can you tell us about this decision to begin the exhibition with the end of his work? When we were organizing the show, we were mostly kind of just plotting these collections and what made sense in each of the themes. And it wasn't until we, we like stepped back from the board that we realized <laughs> that not only did we begin the show with the Untitled Angels and Demons collection, um, which was in the process of being completed at his death, but then it ended with Plato's Atlantis, with which was his final fully realized mm-hmm. collection. And, and so it wasn't actually intentional, but then when we made that realization, we were like, wow, let's just keep it like that. That's beautiful. Serendipity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it, there was a lot of serendipitous moments in this collection. I, I think another is that when, you know, we were like, oh, we better count how many McQueen looks we have in the show because people like stats, you know, when, when they do interviews. And uh, the number of McQueen looks was 69 which is the year he was born. And we were like, and he Whoa. uses it on a lot of, <laughs> on, on different garments as yeah. a motif. <laughs> so there were like moments like that we just kept. Yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. The universe, I totally believe in that. Can you maybe highlight a couple of pairings from this section? Maybe your favorites or something that stands out to you? Yeah, absolutely. One, one of our favorites, um, which um, includes works from our painting department and our prints and drawings department is we paired um, in the Angels and Demons collection, McQueen was looking at paintings by Hieronymus Bosch, um, who of course is known for this really grotesque imagery, um, kind of exploring ideas of sin and hell and redemption. and, And he, in a beautiful jacquard weave, he makes uh, these dresses where the paintings of Bosch are woven in these beautiful techniques um, and turned into gorgeous dresses. And so we, you know, we looked at our permanent collection and in fact, we don't have a Hieronymus Bosch painting at Lacan. <laughs> However, we have- There's only artworks. like 10 in the world or something. Exactly. So. <laughs> it's a pass. <laughs> we have this dress. Don't feel too bad. <laughs> we have our Bosch dress. <laughs> But um, of course, Bosch during his lifetime and immediately after was such an influential figure that we have numerous artworks that come from the school of Bosch. And so we made a pairing of our dress with a Jan Mandine painting, uh, St. Christopher and the Christ Child, which is from circa 1550. And that we also grouped with two prints by Peter van der Hayden after Peter Bruegel the Elder, which were made soon after uh, the Mandine painting. Um, the prints are called Envy and Christ's Descent into Limbo. And so in all these artworks, you can see these references to Catholic iconography and kind of stories and sort of moral tales and just like this crazy imagery of, of, you know, um, again, sort of grotesque imagery. But one thing we loved about this pairing is that you can see how 
artists in their lifetimes were again looking at one another and that this practice that McQueen is doing centuries later looking at Bosch was something that was happening in that time period and that really there's this through line over history where artists are referencing the same source material and the same imagery and the same kind of stories and we just thought it was a really beautiful way to show that kind of process with objects and then I think another thing as fashion historians we just really appreciate is when you think about printmaking the fact that these are made in multiples and this question of going back to is fashion art you know printmaking is seen as an art and fashion is also made in multiples although of course McQueen made they were small small runs <laughs> um, but this connection that just because something's produced in multiples does not undermine its status as an artwork that is worthy of being displayed in a museum um, yeah, yeah I think you're talking about you're talking about class there too I think within that yeah. conversation because when you start placing art in the hierarchies, it's like, okay, well, who can afford the, you know, $500 million painting and who can afford this, you know, $20 t-shirt, but it, you're talking about, yeah, democ democratized art that is accessible to the masses does not lessen the fact that it is still art. Absolutely. And also, I mean, to create multiples is really hard too. Like that yeah. is a craft in its own. It's like yeah. with prints, if you talk to our printmaking mm -hmm. colleagues, like the choice of paper, the choice of ink, the choice of the kind of plates they're going to use. And then the, the expertise of the people who made those multiples and are so exacting about it is really interesting. I think uh, Britt Salveson, who is the head of, of photography and prints and drawings, she, she speaks to that when she goes into uh, this text in the book on um, the series La Toromachia uh, that, that was paired with the, the Dance of the Twisted Bull. In, with with uh, McQueen. But then if you think of McQueen and how he had small runs, but he still had runs of some of these really complicated pieces, suits with so many curved seams and so many pieces and it's sized. <laughs> I mean, it, like as a construction person, I look at some of these things and I'm blown away. And even just the expertise of you know, the workshop or the atelier behind it, that it takes really a number of talented people to to pull this kind of thing off in a multiple rather than sort of this, you know, genius working alone in a studio painting kind yeah. of um, kind of idea of that being what an artist must be, that th there's different ways to be an artist. And yeah, this is one of them. Yeah, and McQueen had a really incredible team yeah. that he worked with. And I always take this opportunity to remind our listeners that all of our clothes are handmade, no matter how much they cost. I digress. Yes. Um, <laughs> so Fashioned Narratives explores McQueen as the master visual storyteller that we all know and love. Please introduce our listeners to this section and share one or two of your favorite stories. So the fashion narratives section, you know, he's really looking at um, stories that he created from his own imagination. And so we explore collections such as Scanners, The Girl Who Lived in the Tree, is, which is probably, I think, one of the hardest collections to speak about briefly, because there are so many sources of inspiration in that collection. There's colonialism, you India. You could be brief. Yeah. <laughs> There's punk. There's textile trade. Textile trade. That one is just such a deep, deep collection and, and one where he's, you know, has a whole story about um, a girl who lived in a tree uh, that was inspired by an ancient elm tree in his country property. And um, it wasn't until she had the courage to descend from the darkness of the tree into the light that she became this princess. And at that point of the show, clothing went from black to white and color. And when color was introduced, you get all of these amazing textiles inspired by India. And then in that collection, uh, John Matheson pointed out that McQueen actually borrowed a lot of really prized jewelry from India to put on the models. And at the same time, he's referencing Queen Victoria and her silhouettes of the 19th century and early 19th century. Queen Elizabeth in the 20th century. And I mean, just so many motifs uh, that, that were touched on in that show. Then we also have In Memory of Elizabeth Howe explored in this collection where McQueen looked to his 
ancestry, his mother was a genealogist and uh, you know, they discovered that he had three ancestors who were tried and murdered in the Salem witch trials. Wow. And this was aunts and it was, it's such a powerful show. I mean, and the pieces that we have are really wonderful there. They have this amazing beading that goes from top to bottom in these beautiful swirling strands that we look at as kind of, they look like hair, you know, strands of hair. And, and if you look at the history of witch trials, when a woman was tried as, as a witch, uh, she had her head shorn so that no marks of Satan could uh, be hidden underneath. And so he almost takes this really brutal act and beautifies it. And then also in America or the earliest years of colonial America, women who were tried as witches were, were typically hung. And this is different than the witches of Europe, where uh, McQueen was from, where they were burned at the stake. And so some of the dresses, these strands of hair also look like fire, you know, in the collection, they, they, they come up as like red and orange. So very deep. And then this thematic section also ends with the Widows of Culloden, which is to me one of the most powerful collections that he's made. I mean, it's so hard to say and so hard to pick a favorite, yeah, yeah. but this one, he's looking at the other side of his ancestry to the side that comes from Scotland um, and his Highland ancestry. And he's really responding to the, basically the British colonization that took place there in the 18th century. And so it's just, you know, so this is a, this was, Definitely a section where he's really looking into himself and his biography, drawing on history as well as other art and artists uh, to tell these stories that he kind of imagines. And in the case of the Widows of Culloden, he's, he's um, responding to the Battle of Culloden and is imagining and celebrating not just the soldiers that died in this battle, but also the widows that they left behind and who he imagines is haunting the Highlands. And can you speak to your artistic pairing with the Widows of Culloden specifically? You paired one dress with one very particular John Singleton Copley painting, which you do discuss in detail in the exhibition catalog in some pretty surprising ways and important ways. Can you talk to us about that pairing and what you discovered about that painting? Yes, this is a case where our pairing of McQueen with this really celebrated work by a very important American painter, John Singleton Copley, where in this case, fashion really helped to <laughs> further analyze this, this huge portrait. The painting is, is a portrait of Hugh Montgomery. It was done in 1780. And at first glance, you see in the center, Hugh Montgomery. He is wearing a full ensemble of traditional Scottish dress. He's dressed in his clan tartan, the Montgomery clan tartan. And also I should say he's posed in the Apollo Belvedere pose, which at the time was a way to show, you know, art lovers and art patrons mm -hmm. that they know so much about ancient art and <laughs> classicism. <laughs> and also what it says about him too. Who was he? Do you know? He was an earl. Okay. And he was the one that commissioned this painting. And so, you know, this painting has a lot written about it, um, but in, in going through the research and, and we have to give great thanks to our colleague, Leah Lembeck, in, who is the head of European and American art, who really did a lot of research on this painting with us and for this exhibition and wrote the, the text on it in the catalog. In the research that has been published, very little really is said to great degrees about what is happening around him. And so Hugh Montgomery is posed in this, is the, in this painting at the center. It's a life-size, larger-than-life-size life, yeah. portrait. It's gigantic. And he is illustrated leading a group of British soldiers into battle against the Cherokee. The painting takes place in the Carolinas, and there is a very brutal illustration of the soldiers overcoming and, and, and yes, brutalizing uh, the Cherokee. And we made this pairing very, very specifically because when McQueen was thinking about the widows of Culloden, one of the things he was reacting to was plaid and tartan. And he wanted to use his clan tartan, the McQueen clan tartan, not as a pattern 
a display, an interesting visual pattern, but something that he's reclaiming. Because after the Battle of Culloden and the British then squashed the rebellion of the Highlanders, it became illegal for any Highlander to wear their traditional clothing, including their clan tartan at all, unless they were fighting in the British army or for the British army, which is why you see Montgomery <laughs> in his clan tartan fighting for the British, leading them um, against the Cherokee. Now, when doing this deep dive on the painting, it's just amazing the discoveries because you realize that one, the painting was made years, decades after the battle, which is a documented battle, so that's false. Uh, the second falsehood is that in this battle, which as I said is documented, the Cherokee overcame the British and they pushed them out. Yes. And then thirdly, of course they as did. costume historians, you look at the way that uh, the Cherokee are portrayed and it's all wrong. They're dressed in more similar to uh, Plains natives, not the Cherokee. The Cherokee would have worn guns. They would have, they didn't just have axes, you know, it's just, it was total propaganda. And we felt it was really important to show the painting in this context. And we're so thankful of the support of Leah, because this is a case where we didn't want this painting to just stay in storage and we can't talk about it. This was the opportunity for us to talk about the problems of this painting. And as we got into it, we were so delighted to collaborate with Native Voices, which is the only um, equity theater in the uh, United States that is comprised solely of, of Native artists. They create their own plays and they tell their stories and they work out of the Autry, which is a sister institution of ours here in Los Angeles. And we reached out to them and the creative uh, director is Delana Studi. And, and she and her team were extraordinary in helping us to create another point of view on the painting because in our view we felt like McQueen was the counter narrative of the plaid that is being depicted and we needed another counter narrative to the falsehoods being portrayed by the illustrations of the Cherokee and and Delima Sudi is Cherokee and so she was amazing she brought up the letters of Nancy Ward who was an elder of the Cherokee, very prominent elder of the Cherokee, and was actually born the same year as Copley, 1738, which was just amazing. And um, there is an audio that accompanied the painting where Delana Studi basically read excerpts from Nancy Ward's letters saying that they should fight for their lands that they should fight for. And all of this is online. You can find it on LACMA's website. And, but then in addition to that, uh, Delena and her amazing, talented team created commissioned plays that were in response to the painting and that were free to the public. And they were roving outside the museum uh, galleries while the show was up. So we just, have, just are so thankful for their collaboration on this as well. Yeah, I love that. And it's such a creative collaboration too, not one that you would typically see or think of, I guess, necessarily. And so grateful to you all for doing that and maybe setting a standard that other museum institutions will follow into the future. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. 
Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this (laughs) hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. So section three is dedicated to technique and innovation, an area in which McQueen thrived as an expert tailor, dressmaker, deconstructionist, and constructionist, obviously. He once said, quote, I spent a long time learning how to construct clothes, which is important to do before you can deconstruct them. Um, That always reminds (laughs) me of like the cubists. Not many people know that Picasso was such a talented artist, right? Um, I mean, obviously he's a talented artist, but was such a, I guess, more traditionally talented artist artist before he deconstructed everything. And McQueen's very similar. So he learned all about constructing clothes and then he deconstructed them with the utmost skill and artistry. Please introduce us to this section and maybe some of your favorite highlights. Yeah, this section is really fun and is really the most costume heavy section of the show, the fewest non-fashion pairings. But in this section, we are looking at McQueen's expertise as a tailor, how he brought his Savile Row training throughout his career, the ways in which after his time as the head at Givenchy, he you know learned all these amazing couture skills that he then also brought into his eponymous label and the kind of beautiful draping and dressmaking that he was able to learn from that experience. His deconstruction, as you said, and then we look at his interest in costume history. He was He was really well-versed in Western costume history. He had worked in theatrical costuming for a brief period of time, and he was well-informed in, you know, centuries of Western costume history that he references in looks that he's recreating, such as in the collection Eroe, he's really thinking about Elizabethan dress history. And then we move into kind of a timeline of fashion history that he's referencing into the 18th century, 19th century, and then the 20th century with other collections. And then the final section in this gallery was looking at his innovative textile techniques. So of course, his his pioneering work in uh, digital printing, many of the amazing embellishments techniques that he did that his kind of genius wasn't just in construction it was also in surface treatments with different beading techniques and then quilting sort of just various surface embellishment techniques you know and with McQueen a lot of his pieces if you were to see them on the runway they might I mean his runway shows were such amazing beautiful spectacles that it was sometimes hard to see a singular garment and what was great is we were able to really focus on the construction and all the influence that goes into even just a single, you know, say jacket. And so one example of this is we had a a quilted puffer coat from his um, Overlook collection that is really paying an homage to Charles James and his 
1930s fashionable puffer coat and this kind of idea that this utilitarian garment can be something sort of artistic and fashionable. We made sort of a curatorial pairing looking at his tailoring skills, paired a checkerboard kind of patterned suit from the scanners collection with a checkerboard patterned suit by uh, Gilbert Adrian. <laughs> Um, an LA-based designer who, like McQueen, actually trained as a tailor. And, you know, not every woman's wear designer has this training as a tailor, but these two share this affinity for tailoring in women's wear. And you can see just the incredible pattern making in their suit making that includes curved pieces. And just as Clarissa said earlier, the way, just trying to fathom the way of grading these patterns to fit different body sizes is really unbelievable that they had this skill. And then I think I might pass it to Clarissa to talk about one incredible dress that was really referencing a robe a la Francaise that blew our minds when we first saw it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a, a pre-collection dress. It's black and red. And, you know, I remember distinctly going to Regina's house and, and her saying, I have a new dress. And, and I'm saying, oh, Regina, our checklist has to close. <laughs> we're, we're, <laughs> we can't take in more. And then she showed it to me and I was like, I'll take it, we'll take it. <laughs> It was this dress where as a costume historian, you'll geek out because it's strapless, but the front of the dress is made with these gathers and pleats. And there is basically a Watteau back, but at the front of the dress that goes down into this bubble hem. And then if you turn the dress around, it's fitted around the torso with lines of pleating that become a triangular shape much like the stomacher which is the front of a robe a la francaise ensemble so he's basically taken this 18th century silhouette ensemble and turned it around and if you're not a costume historian you'd say that's such a cool dress i love how innovative that is if you are you basically are just blown away by the creativity of that and so we paired that dress with a robe a la francaise in our collection we prayed that we'd find a red one and we did <laughs> <laughs> and it's fun to kind of in each iteration of the show kind of show the different angles do we want to show the fronts or the backs or one of each to show that you know he was really thinking about that silhouette in the round yeah i think this is my favorite section for sure because of, of the prime reason that it really addresses mcqueen's love and appreciation for fashion history i mean i think we associate him so much with technical innovation and he's so forward thinking it's easy to forget how romantic and nostalgic he was you also have slashed leather doublets in this section which are just fabulous yeah so yeah and I mean there are some pieces that in there that are inspired by uh, the Edwardian era mm -hmm. and, and we have this Edwardian dress with them and it's so fun as costume historians because when you look at these two pieces that are paired with this Edwardian dress um, you see kind of like that very, you know, common, tight pleating, high neck, bodice front. But then in, they, they have these jackets on them too, the McQueen pieces do. And then there is a, um, a broad twill tape that kind of connects the front, which looks just like the tapes that are inside bodices to hold them in place of that time period. And you have to have seen the inside of a historic <laughs> Edwardian bodice to know that he's referencing the inside of it and putting it on the outside wow. and it's like this just very simple detail and when we saw it we were like oh my god this is amazing. so good yeah <laughs> is, isn't there hair sewn into some of his earlier collections too or am i thinking of someone else yes there is his his oh okay <laughs> I love those little details, though. Those are the kind of threads you can pull that are just so amazing to learn. Um, those kind of hidden details that are left by artists and can only truly be appreciated, I guess, if you're in the know or mm -hmm. um, have some insider info about what the inspiration was behind it. But it's those little details that are just amazing about his work. Yeah, absolutely. So the final section is Evolution and Existence, which explores McQueen's fascination with nature and the cycles of life. Most famously, this is encapsulated by his Plato's Atlantis collection, but not all of his work celebrating the natural world as as obvious or as direct as that. So what pairings in this section explore that relationship? Yeah, this collection... It's so beautiful. I know. <laughs> I just love his his explorations of, you know, we, we when we started the show, people 
would always say, you know, oh, McQueen, you know, he's skulls, right? Like he's all macabre and skulls. And we were like, well, yeah, but you know, there's other aspects to it. And I think this section kind of brings in the skulls a bit, the, the most maybe of all the sections, but also really this kind of elegant, beautiful exploration of nature that goes kind of beyond beyond that. Yeah, I mean, the, the collections in, in this section where we're really looking at life cycles and McQueen had so much respect for life and death. He's, he's said in so many words that, you know, death is necessary because it breeds new life. And um, this is something you see in all the collections that we investigate in this section, uh, which include um, the Horn of Plenty, um, especially excess and how that's detrimental to uh, nature, and he's very particularly pointing a finger at the fashion industry too, um, and overconsumption. He was also looking at Dance of the Twisted Bull, where it's man versus nature and all these dichotomies, only one will survive. Um, also, Deliverance, which is looking at um, American Depression-era dance marathons dance to the death. And that is a theme that you see in so many other kinds of arts, German expressionism, um, 19th century works. Uh, we have Durer in that section. I mean, and, and that's where the birds of prey and probably the one piece that shows a skull in the whole show. <laughs> this is Klingsinger um, sculpture. And then, um, then we also have Saraband, where he's inspired by Barry Lyndon, Kubrick's film Barry Lyndon. He's looking at Dutch still life paintings, which show the beauty of flowers cut at, at their height, but they inevitably will wilt away. And we have a beautiful Dutch still life there, um, as well as Goya. He's looking at Goya. And, and so, I mean, um, and then, of course, it ends with, with Plato's Atlantis, which is probably one of his most popular lauded collections, and right, rightly so. Internet. Yeah, <laughs> Internet, Gaga. I mean, <laughs> so many things collided at that time. And, and I mean, he was so experimental, and it was just so exciting. And, and you really see this marriage of, you know, thinking about a world consumed by water because of, uh, you know, what we've done to our rising sea levels yeah. and global um, climate change and all of this stuff. But then he's taken new technologies and printing and Photoshop and 3D printing, I mean, and, and, and created this really amazing collection. Yeah. And something I also really appreciated about the exhibit is that you address the debate between cultural appropriation and appreciation in relationship to McQueen's work head on. I really appreciated that. You referenced the Buddhist um, inspiration earlier. I'm sure some of our listeners were thinking that. We're going to yeah. talk about it <laughs> yeah. because um, it's important. And why was this important to you to address so succinctly and so head on? And what were some of your conclusions and observations? Yeah, when we began working on the show, that was one of the key things we wanted to make sure to do is to not shy away from appropriation in fashion and in art in general. This is something that I know some museums, especially larger ones, tend to do because it is difficult. It's hard to go there and, and you don't want to upset anybody. And sometimes the tendency is just to keep that stuff locked up in storage. And for us, if we really wanted to do a show about McQueen, we had to talk about those issues. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's just so important and there's really no getting around it when you're talking about someone like McQueen who is drawing inspiration globally and from really just all different time periods. I mean, he's such a encyclopedic kind of thinker himself, kind of like a sponge just absorbing things from everywhere, which, uh, we're very aware was actually quite typical of fashion design in some ways in the time period in which he worked. And it was something that was kind of taken for granted, I think, in that time period. It was accepted, face value, that's what you did, oh, you yeah. know. Contemporary of Jean-Paul Gaultier, Jean, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, um, Jean Galliano, all of those for Dior, all of those collections. So absolutely. absolutely. It was it was celebrated. Yeah. yeah. And by all all kinds of people. 
I mean, we talked a lot, even Clarissa and I both have a background in fashion design and we're trained to make mood boards. You know, what are you inspired by is really the jumping off point that was taught in schools. And you were encouraged to look outside of, you know, yourself and your own personal experiences. And so it's important as historians to kind of take a long view and contextualize it, that this is the world in which McQueen is working. And of course we're cognizant, you know, he's not alive now for us to have this conversation with him directly. So we tried very hard to look at what is what is the art saying? Because as he often said, what you see is in my work. However, we're also very aware that um, we're planning this exhibition a decade after his death and the world is very different now. And so we just wanted to highlight some of the ways in which that has changed, but, I think our job is to, you know, we can't change history. Our job is to talk about history and interpret it for now. Yeah, by having these these juxtapositions and this kind of look into these issues, we're hoping that we can encourage dialogue. Yeah. And honestly, you know, appropriation versus appreciation is a case by case basis. This is something that people have to take the time to really look at each of these artworks. Um, and, you know, we workshopped a lot for this book to, to discuss these more difficult issues. And in doing so, and doing as much research as we could, we realized that very few people had talked about McQueen and appropriation. And so one of the things that our really wonderful editor, Sarah Cody, encouraged us to do is to look at the collections and, and what can we say about that. And, and I think when you look at a collection like I, where McQueen was inspired by Islamic lands, you know, he basically, through his Western eyes, kind of conflates a very yeah. broad and diverse yeah. area with very rich history. And then you can compare that with Widows of Culloden, where he is looking at his own heritage um, in Scotland, and he's looking at what the plaid means to him there. And how both of those collections differ in their sensitivity really shows, you know, when somebody can appropriate or gain appreciation from something that's really intimate to them versus outside of their personal experiences. And in the case where with I, and in every other case where we were looking at him seeking inspiration outside of his own culture and own experiences, we talk to as many people as possible to get their opinions, both scholars in our museum and outside of museum, and also not scholars too, people who are thinkers and artists. And, and I think that it's a lot of work, but it's so meaningful and important. Um, and we're so grateful for all the people that helped us in, in this journey. Yeah, and you know, one piece of kind of advice we are given by one of these people we consulted with is, to approach this really with the mindset that cultural exchange is something that was mutually beneficial from East to West. You know, it's not only Western artists that are looking to Eastern cultures or other cultures or outside their own art process, that many of the cultures that McQueen is borrowing from people of those cultures are also looking outward just as anyone is and they're influenced by trade and exchange. And so that's where we tried to use the permanent collection objects to kind of help illustrate this idea that, especially if you take a long view and look at things from a textile history perspective, you can see how much textiles move and people are naturally curious and they, you know, they become interested in, in novelty and things that are new to them and then they adopt them and they reinvent them. And that's really something that you see in the story of the Kati Remo textile that McQueen reinvented in scanners. And so I think it's, it's hard, we, we like to say, you know, it's difficult to talk about really succinctly in a little soundbite. You yeah, really need yeah. to give it the time kind of um, to work through all the different issues that you're addressing when you think about inspiration versus appropriation. And I think one example that maybe we can give is that in, in addition to the Kachirimo is in the eye collection, we have a ensemble that where the top is edged with coins because there is a history of, of decorations with coins in the larger you know, Middle East, former Ottoman Empire area. And we uh, were given the advice by head of uh, Art of the Middle East Department, Linda Komroff, to show, you know, to show specific works that show not just uh, his influence from the East, but also Western influence 
into the east. And so we have this headdress, a Palestinian headdress um, that is covered in coins and it was uh, worn by a bride. And all of those coins are her wealth that, that, that she is displaying on this very special ceremonial day. And if you look at the coins, there are a few Ottoman coins, but most of them are Habsburg coins, you know, and, and, and it's such a great juxtaposition to have those pieces together. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for, uh, for answering that question. I know it's a really huge topic, but we are so appreciative that that's something that you guys have addressed in this exhibition. Well, this has been so much fun, ladies. Thank you so much. You've been so generous with your time. I do have one question before we go, but before I ask you that, is there anything else from the exhibition you'd like to highlight or from this experience or what you hope hoped viewers will take away? Obviously, the incarnation at LACMA is now closed. Listeners, you can, of course, get your hands on the beautiful exhibition catalog. But in closing, is there anything you want to say about the exhibition before I let you go? Well, we're really pleased that the show has been touring and that we've been able to collaborate with uh, some really amazing colleagues at the NGV, the National Gallery um, of Victoria in Melbourne, Australia. Um, their curators, uh, Katie Somerville and Danielle Whitfield took the show, took the themes and then expanded it um, with their own collection of McQueen, <laughs> because like us, they have the largest collection of McQueen in a public institution in Australia. And that is thanks um, in large part to their donor, uh, Christina Campbell Pretty. And so they were able to take our show with our themes and just really expand it. And then I also want to plug that the exhibition will tour to Canada. It will be opening this summer at the Musée de Beaux-Arts in Quebec City. We've been working with the wonderful curator Maud Levesque, and we are so excited to see their iteration as well, which like NGV, they are going to include works from their permanent collection, uh, non-fashion artworks to kind of, again, dive even deeper into some of these juxtapositions that we first showed at LACMA. And we were just so thrilled that it kind of became this modular exhibition that could kind of become its own thing at each of these venues and that, like at the Beaux-Arts Museum in Quebec, that um, an institution that in fact does not have a fashion department was really open to taking this show and showing a fashion exhibition in this kind of new way through the McQueen project that we developed here. Yeah, so we're really, really honored and, and ecstatic that the show has been able to tour internationally with our really, really, truly amazing colleagues at NGV and the Beaux-Arts Museum in Quebec. Congratulations on creating this beautiful exhibition for all these years and then to put it out in the world and then to see it travel the world and grow. I mean, that must be so satisfying in so many ways. Um, and I think, again, I don't know how many exhibitions I've seen that do that and that really celebrate each individual institution in addition to the original concept. So I just think that's such a cool, cool thing for you both and for all of us who get to see it in person. So congratulations and thank you both so much for being here. This has been a wonderful chat. This is such a pleasure for us. Thanks so much, Cass. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Clarissa and Michaela. And dress listeners, you have until September 10th, 2023 to see the current iteration of the exhibition. It has a slightly different title. It is called Alexander McQueen, Art Meets Fashion at Quebec's Musée National des Beaux-Arts. And of course, if you cannot make the exhibition, you can always pick up an accompanying catalog. Yes, and actually each version of the exhibition has, I believe, their own unique version of the catalog. So if you really love McQueen, you can stock up on all of these books. <laughs> Although I'm going to personally recommend the version I read and, of course, which we highlighted today, and that is Clarissa and Michaela's Lee Alexander McQueen, Mind Mythos Muse. That catalog is stunning. The photographs are amazing and the accompanying essays are so insightful. And dress listeners, I actually, we, I want to talk about something we did not address in the episode, but that you might've picked up on or might've been curious about when you heard it in the episode. And I'm just curious, you know, if you noticed that Clarissa and Michaela kept referring to themselves as costume historians and they kept talking about costume versus fashion history. Yeah. And, and that might be a little confusing for our audience because Cass and I, you and I often refer to ourselves as fashion historians who study the history of fashion. Um, and we're going to spare you a deep dive here 
in the historical distinctions between costume versus fashion and how those meanings of those terms have evolved over time. But let's just let it suffice to say that those terms now are often used interchangeably in our field. Um, and that was the case here. So, you know, you can look no further than the pinnacle of high fashion collections, which is called the Costume Institute at the Met <laughs> in New York for evidence of that. So we do use those terms sometimes interchangeably, but there is yes. a slight difference. <laughs> yes, there is. So on that note, dress listeners, that does it for us today. May you consider the question, is fashion art? Next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you. So please email us at hello at dressedhistory.com. You can also direct message us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you will find images and reels to accompany this week's and all of our episodes, of course. And if you want to find the Instagram content specifically connected to this episode, check out the hashtag dressed 314. That's dressed and the numbers 314. Also, if you love the show and don't like the ads, you can now subscribe to listen to the show ad free. Check out our show notes or also our link tree on our Instagram. And there is a button there for just $3 a month. You can subscribe to our exclusive content, which is the ad free version of dressed. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of Dress Media. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.